Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Happy New Year, everyone, and thanks for downloading and maybe even better subscribing to our podcast here. We know there are so many options out there in the podcast universe, so we really appreciate that you're spending some time with us. In the last few months, we've had a lot of new listeners join us, and we thought it'd be a good time to share one of our favorite episodes that we broadcast early last year. In fact, this episode, which is about long prison terms and their impact on our society, was our very first show. But the topic is still very relevant, and teaser alert, there's even a major criminal justice policy update that we share more about at the end of the show. But first, here's a younger me introducing the topic. Today, there are more than 2.2 million people in jail or prison in the United States. Our incarceration rate is the highest in the world and almost five times higher than that of most other stable, industrialized nations. So the first question is, how did we get here? We asked Ryan King, a senior fellow in the Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center. He's done groundbreaking research on the causes and consequences of long prison terms. There's a combination of factors beginning in the 1970s, coming out of the, the early moments of a tough on crime movement, um, in, in many cases sort of post-late 60s response to Vietnam War protests, a lot of civil rights movement and, and urban unrest. The, the outcome, I think, that we saw at, at the federal level was sort of a commitment to really going after crime. And, and the way that that was defined was by being tough on crime, more arrests, more prosecutions, sending more people to prison. This kind of tough on crime rhetoric has been around since President Nixon and through the years. We must declare and win the war against the criminal elements which increasingly threaten our cities, our homes, and our lives. It's time to get these hardened criminals off the street and into jail. When I sign this crime bill, we together are taking a big step toward bringing the laws of our land back into line with the values of our people. There was also at the same time a perception that, um, quote unquote, nothing works. This was a, a developing set of, of writers and thinkers around prison rehabilitation who began to believe that models of rehabilitation, which were popular in corrections in the, in the 50s and 60s, had failed. Um, and that there's really nothing we can do. And that what we really need to be doing is just locking people up and keeping them off the streets to protect public safety. And so you saw a rapid increase in the prison population beginning in about 1972, continuing all the way until 2009 of annual growth across the states and at the federal level. The Justice Policy Center has found that much of that increase comes from longer prison terms at the state level. Prison terms are a combination of sentencing on the front end and release policies on the back end. In recent decades, states have gotten tougher on both. So states got tougher by sending people to prison for longer. They also got tougher by um, having much more restrictive release policies on the back end. And we saw that through states abolishing parole in the 80s and 90s. So literally saying that every individual who goes to prison will need to serve, um, in many cases, a minimum of 85%. But in a lot of states, parole was abolished entirely. For those individuals who go into prison, they're getting longer sentences they had gotten in the past. And then they're serving a much greater proportion of those sentences than they had in the past. It, it takes away 
away incentive for change. It takes away um, hope for individuals while they're incarcerated. Um, and and I think those two defining characteristics of of the prison population in the last thirty years are, are why we've seen this this rapid growth in in length of stay and one that continues to this day. Now, some states are reducing or eliminating sentences for nonviolent crimes and investing in alternatives to incarceration, such as drug courts. But these reforms haven't stemmed the increase in length of stay because most of that has been driven by the increase in time served for violent crimes. Ryan explains. Most of the policy conversation has been focused around the admissions piece. You know, how can we divert people either at the front ends into something besides prison or for folks who are out on parole after a prison sentence? What kind of policies can we do to make sure that we're not simply revoking them back into prison for some violation? The population that's been completely taboo to be discussed are people who committed violent offenses, people who are serving very long sentences. The next frontier for prison reform is, to, to, to me, it, it is tackling this length of stay question. It's, it's building upon the knowledge and, and the successes that we've seen around the admissions question. And it, it, is, it is a difficult population. These are, again, are people who've committed violent offenses. So that's a much more challenging public conversation and, and political conversation to have than people who've committed um, nonviolent offenses. Government officials say they use long prison sentences to deter crime. But Ryan says there's no evidence to support that. There's no indication whatsoever whether long sentences or capital punishment have any deterrent effect whatsoever. Um, I think the research has been pretty clear that severity of punishment is not what is deterring people. Um, the, new, the, the new research is much more around certainty, certainty of apprehension, certainty, um, and swiftness. The shorter, quick, certain sentences have, have more of a deterrent impact than, than these long sentences. We know that there are racial disparities in terms of who goes to prison. Black people are incarcerated at more than five times the rate of white people. But what about the racial disparities among people serving long prison terms? So worse, um, in 35 of the 44 states that we looked at, the racial disparities in prisons were starkest among people serving the longest 10% of their terms, so the very long prison terms. Um, and this was an interesting question to us because in recent years, as a result of what we, where we've seen a reduction in, in the, the size uh, of the, um, the population of prison for people for drug offenses, we've actually seen um, some positive reductions in the overall incarceration rate for people of color. And crime, it turns out, is generally a young man's game. Take someone who is incarcerated at 22 and is now in his 50s. If he gets out now, research shows that his likelihood of recidivism is really low. They're at a, at a rate that you would expect just from the general population at that point. They're just basically the, the rate that anybody, you, you or I or anybody, would, would be likely to, to, to commit a crime. So they're, um, they're incredibly low. And, and it's all the more heartbreaking when, when you see some states have begun to adopt these what are called geriatric parole or compassionate release policies. When these individuals literally need to be, you know, uh, a day or two from... Um, from death. I mean, they, they, you're, we were talking about people who are, are immobilized and, and have, you know, matters of hours or days to be um, alive before they could be considered to be released. That's, it's, a, it's an incredibly high bar. Any kind of rehabilitation that might happen in prison um, is, is long since gone by the time somebody spent, spent decades in there. If anything, somebody who's spending 20 or 30 years in prison is learning to live in prison. They're not learning to live in society after prison. They're learning to cope with, with living in prison. There's no way to quantify the human toll of this system, but we can share the stories of people who've lived through it. The audio excerpts you're about to hear are part of the Urban Institute feature story, A Matter of Time, 
which was built on research by Ryan and his team and on interviews with people who had served long prison terms. One of those people is Elvin Garcia. Garcia was only 15 when he was sentenced to seven and a half years to life in a New York state prison. He ended up serving 27 years behind bars. But as a society, if we're going to give up on individuals, you know, when they commit a crime and just take the key and throw them away and not afford them the opportunity to ever get back to society and contribute to society, then we're in trouble as a whole in regards to a society. You know, that's not the way um, it was meant to be. You know, it's supposed to be based on rehabilitation, the ideology. And you have a lot of people that have so much to contribute. Granted, I didn't get it right the first time. And I'm grateful that I was afforded the opportunity once again. When people are released after 20, 30, 40 years in prison, they have to start from scratch. Their friends and family may have moved on without them. They have to navigate a world full of technology they don't even recognize. They have to find a job and a place to live, and they have to do it on their own, with a criminal record and little to no education. We get a glimpse of how difficult this adjustment can be from Ramona Brandt, who served 21 years in prison. She was granted clemency by President Obama and released at age 51. Here, Brandt talks about making her way through a world that had changed completely while she was in prison. Um, I was at the halfway house. They gave me a folder. They gave me a bag of tokens and told me to go look for a job. No one considered the fact that I've been away for 21 years. And so I went out and um, I came back. I had a meltdown. I was so afraid that I was about to get violated and sent back to prison because I got on the train and I had a token in my hand. I didn't know how, I didn't know where to put the token to get a ticket. So I sat there with this token in my hand until I got to my stop, sweating bullets, because I think any moment the police is going to come in and they're going to say, they're going to put me under arrest for not having a ticket to the train. The number of women serving long prison terms has increased since the year 2000. In Michigan, for example, the number of women who had served at least a decade increased by 62%. But there isn't much research on women's experiences because they're still a relatively small slice of the prison population. Here's Ryan King again. A couple of factors that are unique to women. One have been that we've seen women serving long prison terms because of being um, victims of, of domestic abuse and basically sort of self-defense. Um, and also, I think, um, women who, who have been around or adjacent to um, partners who um, are engaged in criminal activity. This is, this is common, particularly in the drug space, where people can be picked up for conspiracy and other things, and the federal level in particular, where there are actually really heavy sentences that attach to that. Um, we haven't studied and, and given the attention to this issue that we have um, to other elements of it. I think it, it, needs, it needs a lot more study because the, the circumstances, the experience, and the needs of women serving long sentences are, are not the same as those for men. Hearing the costs of long prison terms, both for society and for the individual, it's worth asking a more fundamental question. Why do we put people in prison? So prison is supposed to be for... A number of factors. Rehabilitation is one. Um, so when individuals come in, uh, identifying the reasons why that individual committed crime, um, 
addressing them so that when they're released from prison, they don't recidivate, they don't repeat and commit additional crime. Deterrence is another, either deterring that individual from committing crime by having been punished in the experience of prison, or what's called general deterrence, which is to deter other folks in the community from committing crime based upon seeing the very harsh punishments that somebody else faced. Incapacitation is another one, and that is to essentially lock someone up. So this is the idea, if you believe nothing works to rehabilitate people, then public safety, the best thing we do is make sure those people are not out in the street and can't hurt others. And so we lock them up and we incapacitate them. Um, and then lastly, retribution, um, just pure punishment. And I think that's the one that's, that's particularly tricky, which is um, punishing somebody who's done something wrong um, and, and sending a message from society that's not acceptable. One thing that's a real challenge then is, you know, when has somebody been, quote unquote, punished enough? When, is there, when has retribution been achieved? We can quantify incapacitation. We can quantify um, deterrence um, and, and we can quantify rehabilitation. Um, the one thing that we can't quantify is retribution because that's very subjective and it's going to vary from, from one person to the next. Um, and I think as over time, our prison system, our correctional system, um, from a model that was very rehabilitation focused in the, in the middle of the century, has now really shifted to one of, of deterrence, incapacitation, um, and retribution. And the, the long sentences that we see in particular fall under, I think, the category of, of incapacitation, but really even more so retribution, just flat out punishing an individual um, for very, very long periods of time. This shift from rehabilitation to retribution is a big part of mass incarceration, and we can't solve that problem without getting rid of extremely long prison sentences. So what can states do to reduce incarceration rates? We need to shorten sentences and we need to provide more opportunities for people who are incarcerated to take advantage of programming, to shorten their sentences and to be released out to the community. We need to be investing in violence prevention in communities. We have an obligation if we care about um, people who are incarcerated, we care about the communities they come from. We also need to care about about, um, crime and public safety in those communities. Many of the communities most impacted by crime are also the ones that are most impacted by very high rates of mass incarceration of people from communities being removed. And people who've been incarcerated one day and then are victims of crime on another day. And then we need, for those people who are incarcerated, currently incarcerated on long sentences, we need to provide some sort of back-end relief so those folks can have their sentences shortened. And then the sentencing phase, we, we do eventually have to revisit our sentencing laws. You know, there, there are principles of parsimony, right? We should, we should be sentencing people for the minimum amount of time necessary to achieve goals. And I think in this, this case, we've done the very opposite for the past 40 years, which is to just bring down the heaviest hammer But the reality is that these are major changes to a pretty calcified justice system. Many of these decisions must be made by state governors, legislators, and attorneys general who have re-election campaigns to consider. No one wants to be called weak on crime. But Ryan says that to achieve real justice, we need our politicians to think about outcomes and less about optics. We need the political courage of, of, of leaders that are willing to stand up and be able to say that, yes, this is, you know, violent crime, personal crime is different than drug and, and property crime in terms of how the public perceives it. It is, it is, a, um, it is, it is I think most people agree, is the, are the most serious crimes and are the kinds of things that people um, want to be addressed most acutely. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that we just sort of throw tough, long sentences punitively and, and just forget about these individuals. We need to have somebody who's willing to stand up and say, you know, this, this is what we need, this is what the data say. Um, and if we believe in second chances for people who've committed a drug offense, for example, why do we not believe in second chances for somebody who's committed a violent offense? That's a tough question, and one we have to address if we're going to end mass incarceration in America. The policies driving long prison terms aren't backed by research. 
But if policy changes got us here, they can also help get us out. Now, we'll close this episode with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember about long prison terms. One, the United States incarcerates far more people than other comparable countries, and long prison terms are responsible for much of the increase in recent decades. Two, there's no evidence that long prison terms deter crime. Spending decades in prison doesn't teach you how to live in society, it just teaches you how to live in prison. And three, Sentencing reforms for drug crimes and other low-level offenses aren't enough. To solve the problem of mass incarceration, we also need to take a closer look at sentencing and release policies for people convicted of violent offenses. So that's our very first show from a year ago, and there's an important update to the story. In December, an important new bill called the First Step Act was signed into law with striking bipartisan support. The law takes steps to address long prison sentences through a few policy changes. Maybe most important, it gives judges more discretion in handing down mandatory minimum sentences for some nonviolent drug offenses. It will also offer people in prison the chance to earn more credits for enrolling in vocational and rehabilitative programs in avoiding a disciplinary record. But it's important to note that it only impacts the federal system, which holds less than one in seven people from our nation's total prison population. Still, this is a first step towards allowing people to earn an earlier release from prison and addressing long prison sentences. And that's a start. Thanks again to Ryan King. Since this episode first aired, Ryan has left the Urban Institute and is now the Director of Research and Policy over at the Justice Policy Institute, and he continues to do great work with that organization. Shout out to producer Vicki Gann, sound editor Matt Johnson, and Katie Smith and Yifan Powers for their help. Our theme song is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off. <laughs>